Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people. I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we bring you a holiday special on peace. We normally do a peace bucket every Wednesday. The big peace issue this year, of course, has been Ukraine, so we were running three prior segments on that. We begin with the recent interview with Joe Gerson, president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. Then we talk with Code Paint co-founder Medea Benjamin shortly after a missile in the Ukrainian war ended up killing several people in Poland, which prompted fears of increased intervention by NATO uh, to respond to an attack on a member country. Later on, I discuss the divisions in the peace movement over Ukraine with Sally Becker, my post host. After that, we hear from Pat Hines, former director of the Trap Rock Peace and Justice Center, about why peace activists and others are joining in the Poor People's Campaign. Finally, we hear about the National Priorities Project, about the ever-growing size of the American military budget. On November 1st, a statement of solidarity with Russians opposed to the Ukraine war was published. Uh, Joseph Gerson, president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, discusses the Russian peace movement and the call for ceasefire and negotiations in Ukraine. I noticed that Joe and the uh, campaign had recently been involved in a statement, letter of support with uh, solidarity for people in Russia, who were uh, expressing opposition to the invasion, the war with uh, Ukraine. Joe, why don't you talk a little bit about the statement and why groups felt it was important to issue it? So so several of us who were veterans of the Vietnam-era peace movement, uh, but also uh, peace efforts uh, during the Afghan and, and Iraq wars, I mean, we, some, many of us were jailed. We, we, you know, we, we suffered. Uh, uh, even as we as we work for peace, and so we could easily identify uh, with the Russians who have been opposing the war, either those who have remained inside Russia uh, at, at considerable risk, some of whom we're in touch with, and you know as many as five hundred thousand who have uh, fled the country uh, rather than be conscripted in, in places such as Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, tough places. So we wanted to express our solidarity with them, but also call for negotiations, because the war has to end uh, if the killing is to stop and if we're to have something approaching a just peace. Now, I've seen a couple of headlines recently that President Biden may actually, you know, be uh, you know, trying to persuade the uh, Ukraines that perhaps this is a time to, to start some negotiations. How, how, where is the Biden administration on the issue of negotiations? Well, I think it's playing a um, subtle game. Uh, the commitment is clearly to weaken Russia uh, and to provide as, as much support as it can to, to Ukraine. At the same time, it's aware uh, that uh, uncritical support for the war is weakening, uh, that especially in Europe, it's going to be a tough winter with lack of energy and heat. And so I think uh, he and, and now Zelensky are in the process of signaling at least a degree of openness to negotiations, which they both essentially refused 
Uh, and much, I think, is going to depend on the outcome uh, of what we're seeing as, as preparations for a really huge and potentially decisive battle uh, in Kyrgyzstan uh, in, in southern Ukraine. Now, there was a fair amount of media coverage early on after the invasion where there was a significant amount of public uh, opposition in, in Russia to to the invasion. And that opposition was quickly trampled down, I guess. Um, where is the sort of peace movement uh, in Russia at this point? How can they operate within the confines of that society? It's extremely difficult. Uh, with with a, a friend of mine who's a physicist in St. Petersburg, uh, we he, he was willing to translate our statement and, and distribute it. Uh, but you know the reality is that people are facing serious jail terms. Uh, there was a recent frontline television uh, documentary uh, which focused on a number of journalists who were opposed to the war. Uh, and in the end, in the last uh, what six weeks, almost everyone featured in the film has had to flee. You know, Russia is is a to say it's authoritarian is probably an understatement. Uh, Putin has used the war to really clamp down uh, on on resistance. I mean, early on, uh, the first day of the war. Uh, a million Russians signed a statement uh, condemning the war and calling for those who had uh, initiated it to be tried as as uh, war criminals. Well, they've they've had to kind of duck for cover now. You know, I also saw a headline this morning from Climate News um, related to some energy company making some deals with Russia. But the point that they were making was that apparently countries outside outside of the United States and Europe really sort of view this whole situation differently, particularly countries, say, from Asia and Africa. You know, what are people's, you know, different perspectives about uh, the invasion, um, you know, from these different countries? So I think there's at least two elements here. One, a number of countries in the global south are looking at something like, you know, American hypocrisy. I mean, here in the United States, you know, as Biden calls for enforcing the rules-based order, you know, we easily forget the invasions of Afghanistan uh, and um, and Iraq and the work the United States has done to um, really overthrow governments. Uh, so the rest of the world is aware of this, and it makes makes many of them hesitant to kind of fully support the United States. The other is that countries pursue what they per- governments pursue what they perceive to be their interests. Uh, so India, for example, has been uh, enjoying the the cheap oil uh, from from Russia. Uh, it also is uh, heavily dependent on uh, Russian uh, parts and weapons for its military. So it's it's attempted to kind of play a, a neutral role in all this. Interestingly, um, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of China uh, for its support of of, of, uh, of Putin and the Russian invasion. But the reality is that uh, China has been much more cautious uh, than we can read in, in the U.S. press, not wanting to fully alienate the United States or its European trading partners. So so back to the issue of um, negotiations and, and this statement, what can be done, um, you know, with the Biden administration or Congress at this point? I actually understand there were some Congress people had initially drafted, you know, a letter call for negotiations, but then sort of backed away from it. Right. So I was involved on the margins with a, a, a letter signed by a number of members of Congress initiated by Congresswoman Jayapal, uh, from the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, that letter uh, praised the Biden administration for its support uh, of, of Ukraine, including the massive transfer of weapons. 
but it also called for um, making uh, pressing for negotiations a, a priority. Uh, it was begun in the summer uh, and it grew to get 30, 30 signatures, what, 10 days ago or so. Um, some members of since then, I mean, the, the, the nature of the war has changed. The Ukrainians have been a bit more on the offensive of late. And I think some of the members of Congress who had not been kept apprised of the uh, plans for releasing it uh, felt that they were, were caught out. Uh, Nancy Pelosi apparently made very, very heavy threats against those who had signed it. Uh, and so Jayapal, in a rather humiliating uh, process, uh, withdrew the letter. Interestingly, I spoke with at least one congressional staffer who worked for one of the, the members of, of Congress who, who, who held on to his commitment for the, the call for, for negotiations, um, uh, saying that uh, Biden actually hadn't opposed the letter, uh, that the opposition actually came more from, um, uh, from, from uh, Pelosi and some members of Congress who were concerned uh, that their signatures being released just before the congressional elections that might negatively impact them. Well, since the congressional elections took place on, on November 8th and maybe a while before we determine whether the Republicans take control of one house or even uh, both houses, now that the elections are, are passed at us, will that in any way impact upon, you know, what the United States is doing in terms of continuing to support and supply weapons to the Ukraine? So what we're expecting is that, um, uh, Republicans, especially if they win control of the House, uh, will at least reduce uh, the financial support for uh, weaponry and other support for, for Ukraine. Uh, how much so, we don't know. Uh, and so there's discussions about the possibility of the Biden administration and Democrats in the lame duck session that's coming up uh, to pass a, a gargantuan um, uh, allocation for, for weapons and support to Ukraine, maybe as much as $50 billion. So so we'll have to see how that, that plays out. Um, you know, there may be more, you know, the Battle of Kyrgyzstan will be taking place soon, we'll be moving into winter. Uh, and I think the, the changes here and there will open the way for greater pressure toward a negotiated settlement, but there's no guarantees. And, and if we don't press, it may not happen. So in the last 40 seconds or so, what can or should the peace movement be doing right now with respect to the Ukraine situation? I think needs to, in, in any way it can, from letters to the editor to sitting in members of Congress's office, uh, calling for the United States to back a ceasefire uh, and, and negotiations. One thing that's being discussed in Europe is the possibility of a Christmas truce, uh, sort of modeled after the World War I Christmas truce, and that could provide a, a foundation uh, for extending a ceasefire uh, and creating the, the, the environment for negotiations. Get a website? Uh, yes, cpdcs.org. That's cpdcs, as in Campaign for Peace, the, the Disarmament and Common Security, .org. And we've been talking with uh, Joe Gerson, the president of the campaign, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. A few weeks after this interview, the war in the Ukraine took a disturbing turn after a Russian-made missile landed in Poland, killing several people. Poland is part of NATO, which requires its members, including the U.S., to respond to such attacks. President Biden had been meeting with other G20 countries um, 
and had been urging to take stronger action against Russia. It was later discovered that the missile was apparently fired by Ukrainian defense forces. We talked with Medea Benjen, co-founder of Code Pink, about the situation. We're joined by a longtime uh, peace activist, uh, Medea Benjamin, um, well-known for being one of the co-founders of, of Code uh, Pink. I, we've had Medea on to talk previously about some peace issues. And I initially asked her, because on Tuesday, the reports had came out that some Russia-made missiles had actually uh, landed in Poland as part of the ongoing war with uh, Ukraine. And that was leading to increased calls for intervention since Poland is a member of, of, of NATO. But it, it seems to have been diffused a little bit in, in, in more recent hours. But can you give us um, an update as to what's going on? Well, it was a very scary time yesterday when it seemed like this might have been inadvertently a missile from Russia, but that that would be a justification for invoking Article 4, getting an emergency meeting together of NATO, and then potentially invoking Article 5, which is calling for NATO countries to defend another NATO country, which would have meant a, uh, a massive escalation of this war. Uh, luckily, it turns out that this was not a Russian missile, but it was a Ukraine missile that was um, inadvertently uh, sent into Poland, and that this has calmed the tensions. I'm, I do want to point out that Secretary General of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, uh, did come out and say, well, in any case, this is not Ukraine's fault. It's Russia's responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. Uh, while he was quite hawkish about the whole thing, uh, others, including the U.S., were seemed uh, happy to walk it back because they have been anxious not to have a direct war with Russia. And this uh, moment, I don't feel we, we should feel complacent about, though, because this is bound to happen again. And that is why this war is so dangerous, not only for all the people that are being killed in Ukraine today, but for the potential of it becoming a direct war between Russia and NATO and potentially a nuclear war. Well, it's interesting that uh, the Biden administration sought to defuse the, a little bit uh, the response to uh, this particular missile attack, because right now the G20 groups are, are meeting out in uh, Bali, uh, while the rest of the world is meeting uh, for COP27 about climate. And the reports have been is that Biden has really been pushing the G20 countries to be more aggressive uh, about Russia, starting with uh, imposing some caps on the price that they're willing to pay uh, for Russian uh, oil and gas. So <clears throat> it certainly seems that the Biden administration is continuing to try to escalate uh, the tensions with Russia. Well, the Biden administration is very divided. When you see the head of the Joint Chief of Staff. Um, uh, Mark Milley saying that uh, the winter time is a good time to uh, ease the war, to seize the moment, to go to the negotiating table. And then he gets pushback from people in the administration uh, that are uh, totally content to keep this war going and 
see Ukrainians dying every day in their effort to weaken Russia. So I don't feel that there is a unified message coming from the Biden administration now, but it does show that there is tremendous concern about uh, an, an intentional or unintentional direct conflict with Russia. And that is evidenced by the fact that there are talks going on not between Putin and Biden and not between the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who should be talking to his counterpart in Russia, but between the head of the CIA, the head of the National Security Council, and the Secretary of Defense, because they don't want to see this expanded. Well, this has become, you know, uh, a very nasty war of attrition. The longer the war goes on, obviously, the more people are, are, are being killed on uh, both both sides. What, what are the real prospects for at some point uh, especially with, you know, the Ukraine seem to be making some real advances that some type of negotiated settlement or at least ceasefire might come about. Well, Americans should not believe the narrative that we often hear in the mainstream media that this is a war that can be won by the Ukrainians. Every time there is an advance being made, there is a response from Russia. For example, when the Russians retreated from Kherson, which was seen as a uh, a victory for Ukraine, then immediately Russia responded by lobbing all of these missiles and destroying more of the electrical grid and leaving more millions of Ukrainians um, in, in the dark and potentially in the very, very cold this winter. Uh, so there, for every action, there is a reaction. This is not a winnable war. We hear that from the generals, both former and ones in power now, saying it's not going to be won on the battlefield. And so I think um, it is the most rational thing to say, if this war is going to be solved at the negotiating table, why aren't we pushing for negotiations? And that's what the American people have to do more, Mark, which is to push our members of Congress and the White House to take a rational position to say we need a ceasefire and negotiations. Now, I, I did not pay attention to Tuesday night's announcement. At least I didn't listen to it, that uh, Mr. Trump is running again for the White House. But apparently he was trying to make the argument, well, if I was president, this war wouldn't be going on or something along that line. He has said that at his various campaign rallies. And he mentioned last night, you get Biden and you get war. You had Trump and you had peace. And uh, of course, it's not true. But it's the narrative that he's putting out there. He says that he would have talked to Putin and the war would have never happened. And perhaps that is true. But the important thing to understand is that he knows that this is a message that resonates with a strong base, not only of in the Republican Party, but the American people in general. And I think the Democratic Party is doing itself a tremendous, tremendous disservice, as well as a disservice to the Ukrainian people uh, by... Uh, shooting down the messengers within the Democratic Party, like the 30 progressive Congress people who said uh, we should be calling for negotiations uh, by making them withdraw that letter to Biden and walk that back. Uh, they are leaving the peacemaking position, uh, the one of the Republicans, and not only Trump, uh, but the 57 Republicans who voted against the $40 billion package, and there's another package that will be coming up soon. Let's see what the Republicans do about that. Uh, and it's, um, it's often the extreme right-wing Republicans 
who are picking up the banner of making peace, which just does not make any sense at all. But the American people, if they're looking for a way out of this to stop sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine and use it instead to help people here at home, uh, they're going to be looking for what party that is. And right now, the Democratic Party is more uh, clearly the party of war. Now, most you know American peace groups, while recognizing that certainly the United States and NATO have been provoking Russia for many years by continuing to expand NATO, most American peace groups have condemned the Russian invasion uh, of the United States as, as, as being illegal and an act of war. But they're also seeing a pretty strong agreement among most peace groups that the United States should not be, you know, arming uh, any side in any war because that just belongs to killing. It appears likely that the Republicans will have a narrow margin control uh, in the House. Democrats will still control the Senate. Will that change around any of the dynamics in terms of what the United States does in terms of um, this particular war? I don't think it will change the dynamics in terms of sending military or allocating um, there's another $23 billion package that will come up. I think that will pass because all of the Democrats will vote for it and the Hawks and the Republican Party will vote for it as well. But hopefully what it will do is bring up more of a discussion about this war and about the U.S. position and um, perhaps allow for some of these Democrats who felt pushed back when they called for negotiations uh, to get a spine and start doing that again. And that depends a lot on their constituents. If they start hearing more from us, because the 57 Republicans who voted against the $40 billion package, many of them said they did so because they were hearing from their base. We've been talking with uh, Medea Benjamin, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. We're streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. You can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Ever since Russia invaded uh, the Ukraine in late February, the peace movement in the United States has been divided over how to respond. Uh, the conflict is now in its 10th month with massive civilian and military casualties. While most peace groups recognize that the United States had been provoking a war with Russia for decades, most, but not all, believe that Russia was wrong to have illegally invaded Ukraine. Most, but not all, peace groups have opposed the United States providing arms to the Ukraine as it just belongs to killing. There are some progressive forces, however, who believe that Russia is the main victim here. Others argue that the Ukraine has a right to defend itself against Russia's invasion, <coughs> including the United States getting um, supplying military weapons. In late August, I talked with co-host Sally Becker about these differences. Over the last six months, the Hudson Mohawk magazine has interviewed guests with varying views on the conflicts. 
For today's segment, I'm going to interview Mark about the divisions in the peace movement. Mark, can you give us a broad overview of where the American peace movement stands on Ukraine and what are some of the key points of disagreement? Well, I think a strong majority have been quite clear that it was wrong for Russia to have invaded uh, Ukraine and that it should, uh, you know, cease hostilities, you know, immediately. You know, and I will say most observers, you know, including the Hope and, you know, academic foreign policy experts, you know, recognize that since the breakup of the Soviet Union, the United States with this, you know, massive military uh, drive for world domination, uh, has certainly provoked uh, Russia by increasingly expanding NATO, uh, despite promises made to Gorbachev uh, to the contrary. Um, most, however, would still argue that was not a justification um, for the invasion. However, the more leftist uh, peace groups tend to disagree, uh, saying that you know Russia's response was just the logical product that many people have warned about of the United States long-term aggressive campaign to expand um, NATO um, and to challenge uh, Russia. Um, they also argue that Ukraine has been heavily influenced um, by fascists and, and the resurrection of the Nazi movement, and that you know these individuals killings, tens of thousands uh, of Russian supporters in Ukraine since the 2004 coup uh, certainly justify uh, Russia's response. Others respond, however, that you know Russia itself is a corrupt imperial power, not particularly much better than the United States, and that the domination of the Ukraine and exploitation of the resources, not some self-defense by Russia, is, is really what is you know motivating uh, Putin. So how legitimate is that claim about the influence of fascists and the role of the U.S. is orchestrating a coup in 2014 that overthrew the duly elected government of Ukraine? Well, most would say that the fascists and the far right certainly have had a very strong presence uh, in the Ukraine. But recent elections show that their base of support um, has declined to a level similar to that in other European countries and arguably, you know, the level of support for fascism in the United States under Trump. So they argue it's not, you know, much different than a lot of other places. And I think most would also say that the 2014 overthrow, overthrow the coup uh, against the duly elected government was really more of a case of the local population just getting fed up with the enormous corruption under that government. Unfortunately, corruption still continues to be a huge problem uh, in, in the Ukraine. And while certainly the United States, you know, celebrated the coup and to a certain extent was willing to parade around and take some credit for it, I, I think many observers would say the United States latched on to a legitimate grassroots movement rather than, you know, actually orchestrating it. Uh, and, you know, we should note that the current, you know, President Zelensky is himself Jewish certainly not supported, you know, by the Nazis or anti-Semitics. You, you know, many people call him the Ukrainian equivalent of uh, John Stewart, a political comedian, and then he fairly won um, his elections. Um, the more leftist peace groups, however, would say, well, this is very naive, and, and that the fascist militia that were active in the 2014 have both been integrated into the Ukraine military and also reportedly operates independently at times 
uh, as a militia and does, you know, sort of the dirty work that you don't want to, you know, have the government uh, take responsibility for. And they point out that the Nazis, fascists killed more than 10,000 people in East Ukraine, many of them supporters of Russia, though others argue that was, you know, more in the years right after the coup uh, than a recent high level of killing. Is Ukraine a proxy in the war with Russia doing America's bidding? Well, one group that would certainly argue that Ukraine is not a proxy is the um, Ukrainian people um, who certainly see themselves as protecting their home, you know, against the Russian invasion. You know, they would certainly love to see more help from the United States and, and, and NATO. But, you know, they are fighting for their country and their perspective. They're not you know, playing um, the, the game that the United States wants them to. Um, at the same time, it's very clear the United States, um, having both prompted the invasion, is now certainly using the situation to escalate its Cold War uh, with, with Russia. And, and certainly most liberals, Democrats uh, in the United States have rallied around, um, you know, Biden and whatever he's doing, the sanctions, um, I, mean, I think people should be aware the United States and NATO had heavily supplied Ukraine with high performance weapons even before the invasion. This is not, you know, some defenseless third world country going up against a military juggernaut. Uh, and this is also one of the reasons why the conflict is continuing, because the, the Russia certainly has more military, but Ukraine is not uh, defenseless. And besides providing billions in weapons uh, at the moment, the United States has been providing uh, really critical intelligence to the Ukrainian forces, helping them to target their own response. It's one of the reasons why uh, the Ukrainians have been able to kill so many Russian generals uh, and also have been uh, able to knock out some of Russia's major uh, weapons. What does the peace movement feel about the weapons the U.S. is providing for Ukraine? Well, I, this is another issue where people are divided, but I think it's also an issue where, you know, people flip. Um, the more progressive peace groups uh, like Code Pink and World Without War are, are strongly opposed, um, primarily on the grounds that the one thing uh, that providing weapons guarantee is unfortunately that more people will be killed and the killing will continue for a longer period of time. Um, the, the, the longer standard traditional peace groups um, have also um, understood that you don't, you know, you don't put out a fire by throwing more gasoline uh, into it. But, you know, many peace groups, groups in general are very strongly allied with the Democrats, even though frankly, the Democrats tend to have a very similar positions, at least on war and the military uh, as the Republicans. And so they just tend to support whatever, you know, Biden does 100 percent, even though both Biden and before her, you know, Hillary Clinton um, have a longstanding tradition as one of the country's leading um, war hawk. Um, others, however, in the peace movement on the left argue that everyone is entitled to defend themselves against an attack such as, as what Russia is doing and therefore arming the Ukraine is justified just as. People may remember the Spanish Civil War, you know, arming uh, people against Franco. Um, uh, Franco. Uh, you know, there's a similar response to sanctions. Um, to be honest, so far, the sanctions seem to be harming European countries more than Russia. 
And it certainly seems to have contributed to higher gas prices in the United States, which has been undercut in support, you know, particularly for Biden, but for Democrats in general. And um, while, you know, many people have said that this war should be a wake up signal for countries um, who are so dependent on the gas coming from Russia that they should move to the clean renewable energy uh, rather than the fossil fuels they get from Russia. Uh, the reality is the fossil fuels seem to have been one of the big winners so far in this conflict. While most observers have charged that Russia is guilty of war crimes, Amnesty International also recently said that the Ukrainian military was found guilty of misbehavior by integrating its military forces into civilian areas, including hospitals and schools. What's your read on this? Well, one of the reasons why you know I tend to be a pacifist and oppose all wars is because I believe all war is a crime against humanity with the weapons manufacturers being the only winners. And while I did not have any firsthand knowledge of what's really going on on the ground, it, it does seem pretty obvious the Russians have been guilty of at least certain level of, of war crimes, and, and particularly by individual military leaders and, and other actors. The Russians argue that they've not been directly targeting civilians, which I believe is largely true but when you fire so many missiles into areas near civilian populations, uh, accidents are just going to occur on a very regular basis. Um, and my guess is certainly the individual commanders and combatants have engaged what would be war crimes on a fairly regular basis as they get frustrated uh, by the slow progress. Um, and the more people die, the more people are willing to escalate the violence and brutality. As for the Ukraine, they argue that putting military forces in with civilians is necessary because of their dire situation. But that, however, clearly violates um, uh, international um, norms. And I also assume that some of the more fascist militias and troops in the Ukraine have also stepped over the line. Unfortunately, in general, the, the world seldom enforces the law uh, against war crimes, especially against the powerful, whether that's Russia, the United States, or Israel. So what's the answer? Uh, well, I know we're running out of time. Uh, I mean, obviously, an immediate ceasefire um, would be great, but, but how do you actually accomplish that? I think the United States has to reverse course and promote peace rather than conflict um, with Russia. And that you know, made me to talk about the dissolution of, uh, of, of NATO. Somehow, they're going to have to guarantee um, Russia's uh, security. You know, at the same time, you know, how do you get Russia to actually leave all the Ukrainian territory, given how many people have, 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 have died doing that? Uh, and then in general, one place to start is the so-called Minsk Agreement, which has been adopted on and off since 2014. And it was supposed to, mod you know, deal with how we're supposed to resolve this conflict between Ukraine and Russia, but it's not, not been implemented. So we're out of time for this week's peace segment. That was Mark and I talking about the divisions within the American peace movement over Ukraine. It was not an attempt to provide definitive answers on conflicting perspectives. It was, if you have a viewpoint on Ukraine that you would like to hear or are organizing events related to Ukraine, please contact us. In addition to the Ukraine, the peace movement in the last year has worked to strengthen linkages to other social justice movements, such as the climate and those fighting for economic justice. 
In May, I talked to Pat Hines, former director of the Trap Rock Peace and Justice Center in Western Massachusetts, who had written about why peace activists and others are joining in the Poor People's Campaign's march, which took place in Washington in, in June, five decades after Dr. Martin Luther King's Poor People's March. We're joined by Pat Hines, uh, and too recently still a board member of the uh, Trap Rock uh, Center for Peace and Justice, a former uh, professor of uh, environmental health at, at Boston University. And for a peace bucket, uh, I, I saw that she recently wrote um, an op-ed, I guess, for a local paper about the Poor People's uh, Campaign, a new uh, incarnation. We certainly have had people on from the Capital District Poor People's Campaign, and there's going to be a big march, I believe, June 18th of this year for mass poor people's and low-wage workers' assembly and moral march on Washington and to the polls. So, um, Pat, what, what inspired you to, I guess, join the Poor People's Campaign? Well, there is a woman in Western Massachusetts, and I think there are people like her all over the country who are local or regional uh, directors of the Poor People's Campaign. And so she, was, she reached out to me and also many others in Western Massachusetts to see in what ways we could uh, get involved, partner with uh, the Poor People's Campaign. She also had the Trap Rock Center for Peace and Justice in mind. And I, I told her that uh, I thought the best thing that I could do for the Poor People's Campaign was to write a piece on it for our regional newspaper. Uh, I have a column in that, a monthly column. And so I would use my, uh, let's see, was it April or May column for um, interviewing her and providing, informing and educating people here on the Poor People's Campaign and specifically too on the March in Washington. And they are um, organizing buses. This will be from all over the country, you know, as well as here. So she wanted that information out as well for people who would like to go but need a ride, for example, want to go uh, on a bus with a, a community of people. In interviewing her, I, I learned uh, a little bit more in depth about the campaign. I think you, like I, and so many others were aware that this campaign first of all, started a good 54 years ago with Martin Luther King, but that it's been revived over the past few years and um, that this march was happening. But to learn the purpose of the march, to also learn more about this era's Poor People's Campaign, that was the point of my interview with her. And um, I'll simply say that the first Poor People's Campaign, the thing that was unique about it, and this was uh, Martin Luther King, was that he joined materialism. Now, by that, I would say he meant capitalism, militarism. This was in the midst of the Vietnam War and racism, calling these the three pillars of what will bring down our democracy in our country. I personally would like to add a fourth pillar to that, um, and that would be patriarchy, which is, um, you know, a structural rule um, based on dominance. And I, I think that, too, contributes to 
the uh, poverty that we see and also the deep inequality that we see, given it is premised on inequality between men and women. But um, of course, Martin Luther King was tragically assassinated before uh, the march. He could essentially be part of the march on Washington. And what I found interesting in looking more deeply into it uh, was that the march went on in his spirit on Mother's Day. Uh, this was May 68. So Mother's Day, 54 years ago. And it was led by Coretta Scott King uh, with thousands of women. And that formed the first wave of demonstrators for the Poor People's Campaign. Now, so, um, yes, Mark. One of the things uh, I, I would note, um, you know, I, I worked for many years for the Hunger Action Network in New York State, and we were mm -hmm. you know, probably the most visible statewide anti-poverty campaign. And we had a similar campaign before this campaign. But Hunger Action Network is one of the few anti-poverty groups that expressly went after uh, the military budget oh. and, and, and called for, for deep cuts uh, every year, often, to be honest, uh, often stronger than some of the peace groups did in terms of the size of the cuts. But yeah. we were sort of the outlier um, with that. There were not many anti-poverty groups that expressly went after the um, mm -hmm. um the, the military budget. Has that changed with the Poor People's Campaign? Is there a more I, I renewed would, emphasis on the military budget? I would say yes. With this um, with this um, leadership and also, I think, with members of it, very aware, keenly aware of the budget, the military budget, which, of course, is the highest in history in this country and um, proposed for 800 and something like 15 billion dollars for next year. And all you need to do is look at our discretionary budget and look at the percent of that budget dedicated to, let's say, food, uh, to hunger, et cetera, nutrition, uh, it would be just a couple of pennies for every dollar that is being given to, uh, that is being allocated for militarism. I, I think currently that the, this Poor People's Campaign is very aware of that. They have said that there are for 140 million poor and lower income people of all colors that they are currently representing. And they do address militarism and the war economy. They speak widely, broadly, strongly about that. But in addition, they have also included now in their campaign, ecological devastation, the health impacts of pollution, and the denial of health care. So they have added dimensions of advocacy, uh, which are crucial for poor people. I think what you identified, though, is it, it's been um, a weakness of many single-issue movements. The peace movement simply focused on peace rather than on additionally poverty. For example, I think other uh, anti-poverty campaigns not recognizing that militarism is at the base of sucking money away from all of the other needs in this country. However, that said, I've had many people from peace groups who would be focused on um, uh, a conflict, on, on the arms budget, the military budget, et cetera, uh, say that they don't understand why younger people focused on climate change, biodiversity, aren't also more active in the peace movement. 
And so we do have and have had historically, I think what you pointed out, we have had our movements, uh, which have so much in common, uh, our social movements, be, be single issue movements. And I think the more that we can bring these issues together, um, that the issues of poor people, whether it's hunger, it's housing, et cetera, get crumbs from the master's table compared to the budget for the military, that we must keep making that message. Well, we have about two minutes left. So I'm going to mm -hmm. just to sort of follow up on that. So what peace groups you know, are mobilized, and I, I guess both to uh, support this particular uh, March on June 18th, but, mm -hmm. you know, how can they also better integrate with the Poor People's Campaign in 90 seconds? Yes. Okay. First, I think Code Pink is an excellent example. National camp, uh, national group was having more and more profile. Excellent example of bringing these issues together. They will be in Washington on June 18th. And at the same time, uh, protesting in um, wherever they can in front of general dynamics, et cetera, the weapons industry. How can people find out more information about this campaign? And is, you know, what can they do also besides going to the march to help support the goals of the campaign? Yeah, well, I think the campaign wants to have regional offices and regional campaigns. So I would say for people to just, first of all, inquire in their own community. If, if there's an organized uh, group, uh, Poor People's Campaign, uh, short of going to Washington, and um, let's see, your other question. Oh, well, I, I would say to um, basically use your, your internet to find out more about the national campaign and then use your resources in your community, your connections to find out if there is local organizing, as I discussed, it, that we're having in Western Massachusetts. Well, um, th thank you very much. We've been talking mm -hmm. with Pat Hines, a former uh, director, still board member of Trap Rock uh, Center for Peace and Justice. Uh, June 18th, Poor People's Campaign, Washington, D.C. We'll have, I'm sure, the Capital District people on before then. And this has been Mark Dunley for the um, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We finish with the National Priorities Project. Um, the main disagreement between the National Democrat and Republicans Party over the military budget is over which of the parties will give more money. Uh, a few weeks ago, with Congress about to approve uh, $858 billion for defense for 2023, a $45 billion increase over what President Biden had requested, I talked with Lindsey Kashkarian, who is the director of the National Priorities Project. We're joined for our Peace Bucket by uh, Lindsay Kashkarian, who is a, um, with the uh, National Priorities um, Project, part of the uh, Institute for uh, Policy Studies. And as happens every year, the United States Congress is about to pass um, a, a, a record um, defense budget, you know, formally around $858 billion, much more if you include um, everything. And as often is the case, uh, the House, the Congress is trying to give a $45 billion increase above even what President um, um, Biden put on the table. So, Lindsay, why is this not a good idea? I mean, we're fighting this war in Ukraine. Oh, I guess we're not fighting it. But, you know, that's adding on to our expense, isn't it? What's driving this budget increase? No, it's it's not what's driving this budget increase at all, Mark. And the fact is, these budget increases have been ongoing, you know, since before um, the war in Ukraine. And 
Um, and the amount of money that the U.S. is spending on the war in Ukraine is still only in the tens of billions of dollars. So, you know, we're talking about less than 10 percent of this current budget is is how much we've been spending. And this $858 billion that you referred to doesn't even include money that we'll spend uh, on the war in Ukraine this year. So in including that, it'll go even higher. Um, but what this is, is a longstanding pattern that we've seen of spending more and more on the Pentagon, um, even while we see programs like the uh, expanded child tax credit that helped cut child poverty in half was discontinued by Congress this year. It was a tremendously successful program, and it could have been funded for about half the cost of the increase um, that, as you said, the House gave um, over President Biden's budget request for the Pentagon this year. So it's really a question of extremely mispra misplaced priorities and who's wielding the power in Congress. Now, I was one of the people who, you know, thought it'd be a great idea if uh, the president and Congress came up with a lot of money um, for uh, climate. And, you know, my recollection is we were talking about a couple hundred, you know, billion dollars spread out over a 10 year period. And yet we often hear, you know, you mentioned the child care tax credit, but, you know, whether it's, it's climate or housing or environmental protection, you know, we always say there's not enough money. The budget's too tight. We got a budget deficit. And yet when it comes to the military, that doesn't seem to be the case. That's right. It doesn't seem to be the, the case at all. You hear this, the same members of Congress you see refusing to vote for higher spending on renewable energy, the same members you see refusing to continue the child tax credit expansion that was so successful, um, are the same folks who are voting to increase this budget. And it's a simple question of who they're accountable to. Half of this budget, about half every year goes to Pentagon contractors. It's a, they're a, it's a huge industry. They have more lobbyists than there are members of Congress. They spread jobs across every single congressional district, and it's a it's a um, that's who the members of Congress are, are accountable to. Um, but you know we can change that if we if we make them accountable to us instead. But they have to hear about it from us. Now, one of the things that a little bit startled me, you know, recently read wasn't startled by the fact that once again the Pentagon, you know, failed to be able to account for its money when it comes, you know, came for an audit. But what startled me was how much money they could not, you know, account for. It's like the three point five trillion dollars or something of what they call assets. Uh, you know, they were missing, you know, 55, 60 percent of that. They couldn't account for it. Uh, you certainly get the impression that a lot of money is being spent, but it's not clear, you know, where it's ending up. And then, of course, when you come to weapon sales, you do know that many of the weapons, in fact, end up in the black market and actually often end up arming the very, you know, political and military forces we claim that we are opposing on the field. Yes, Mark. So what you're referring to is the fact that the Pentagon just failed its fifth audit in a row. Uh, it has never passed one. Every other major government agency has passed an audit. And what that means is that the Pentagon doesn't know where its money goes. Like you said, out of three and a half trillion dollars in assets, that includes things like property, buildings, weapons, um, equipment, they were able to account for less than half of what they had, um, only about a little less than 40% actually is, is how much they were able to account for. So that means that they have that much money, trillions of dollars that they have spent that they don't know 
where it went or where those assets are. Um, and that's that should be a huge problem. And you know, the fact that no other agency has had this problem has been has completely failed to pass an audit is very much a function of how huge the Pentagon is and how spread out it is. Um, it has dozens of, of smaller agencies within itself of, of offices and, and programs and uh, and that you know aren't talking to each other. It has 750 military installations all over the world. All of that is equipment that needs to be count, accounted for. And like you said, some of that is weapons that end up in hands that we don't intend them to be in. Um, of course, there's also the separate problem of the U.S. selling weapons in, into hands that we shouldn't be, um, like the you know weapon sales that we have approved this year to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates even while they're continuing to prosecute this war in Yemen that is one of the biggest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world. Um, so that's a problem. And then, you know, that is, meanwhile, we see this, uh, we saw Brittany Griner, the, the WNBA player finally released from Russia, which was great news, um, but she was exchanged for um, this figure, Victor Boot, who's been called the merchant of death because he sold arms. But the U.S. sells far more arms and we sell them into uh, hands that are just as uh, dangerous and causing just as many innocent deaths as Victor Boot ever did. Um, so this is what that Pentagon money is going to. It's going to subsidizing the system that is selling those arms and that is losing arms and having them end up in the wrong hands. And it's causing deaths and, and suffering of innocent people. Uh, and that's what that money is paying for. Yeah, I, I was going to raise with the Griner uh, situation that none of the mainstream media seem to be raising the point that you know the United States is actually the biggest seller of of weapons on the planet. So, not the first time we've talked with the National Priorities Project about this issue. Uh, you know, what is the prospects of actually getting you know something done about this? As we all know, Dwight Eisenhower warned us about the power of the military-industrial complex. And it just seems to be coming more powerful and it owns both political parties. What gives you optimism we can change this? Well, a, a couple of things. One is that we've done it before. You know, in the in the 1990s, we managed to cut the military spending in this country by more than a quarter. Um, and of course, those were different days. There were different circumstances, but but it is possible. And so that's one thing that gives me hope. Um, another thing is ongoing efforts to organize around this. Um, that are really taking some newer and interesting directions. There's um, the Poor People's Campaign, which is a fusion campaign that marries anti-poverty, anti-racism, um, anti-militarism, and anti-ecological anti devastation, excuse me, uh, those four things, and puts them all together and is organizing in places and among poor people who haven't been organized effectively in this country in a long time. So that gives me hope. There's a People Over Pentagon campaign that uh, has is right now sponsoring legislation that would cut the Pentagon budget by $100 billion and has growing support among progressives in Congress. So that gives me hope. Um, and there are other movements like... Um, like immigrant right movements and uh, racial justice movements that are also openly recognizing the devastation of militarism and our Pentagon 
around the world. And so all of that kind of gives me hope. And we, we know from polling that young people don't buy into U.S. exceptionalism and the idea that the U.S. military should be ruling the world. So that gives me hope, too. Um, and I think between all of these things, we need to keep organizing and um, given enough time and enough persistence, I think we can out-organize even the military industrial complex. We've been talking with uh, Lindsay Kashkarian of the National Priorities Project. Lindsay, people want more information or even when they want to talk to their Congress people about this, how, how best can they get connected? They can find our website and information at nationalpriorities.org, um, which includes a way to contact a member of Congress. And you can even, uh, if you play around with some of our calculators, you can even find spending uh, budget figures that are relate, relate to your own congressional district. So nationalpriorities.org. Thank you very much, Lindsay. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That is it for our holiday special on peace issues. We air a weekly peace segment on our Wednesday show. You can find our various peace segments by going to our website, mediasanctuary.org, and typing in peace on the search button on the top right. That's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I am Mark Dunlight. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. 